Happy New Year, American Hauntings fans. As we get closer to the start of Season 8, I wanted to drop in a few little extras that I promise will have absolutely nothing to do with the season that follows. Or will it? I just thought you might want something intriguing to listen to as we enter the dead of winter, when the days are short and the nights are long, cold, and dark. So, I mean, this really has nothing to do with Season 8, which we'll be launching the trailer for on January 23rd. This is not connected to that season. Or is it? No matter what else it is, it's a look back at the season that we did on the Velisca Axe murder. So, if you haven't listened to that season yet, you might want to. It'll make a lot more sense to you if you do. Uh, before we get started, though, uh, I should probably say, this is Troy Taylor, uh, jumping into this bonus episode for you. Um, I wanted to catch up on the handful of texts that we received um, since the holidays on the American Hauntings hotline. Oh, I'm sorry, haunt line. So if you have a message, a comment, or suggestion you want to send us, the haunt line number is 217-791-7859. Five, nine. Now, here's a couple of texts that we, uh, that we did have. Uh, this one came from uh, the 865 uh, area code. Um, it's from Christy. And it says, good afternoon. I love the end of the year scary movie countdown. I'm a teacher, so I have two weeks to binge watch the list in between the time that I watch my grand sugar. So I hope Cody is better soon. Thank you both for all that you do. And that was from Christy. So thank you, Christy. Uh, this one's from the 618, and this is from our friend Tim Beggs, and he said, I wanted to wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we'll see you at some of the events coming up in February and March. Uh, and then uh, this one actually just came in today, so just in time to get on to this recording. Uh, this one is from the 254, and it says, hey there, I just got completely caught up on Patreon and on the regular podcast. I love both of them. I'm from Texas, and I know there's a lot of hauntings here. Uh, I love history and crime and hauntings and really enjoy you all. Uh, thanks for making my work days go faster. Can't wait to hear more. Well, I, I may have some news uh, in regards to Texas, uh, not necessarily going to Texas, but about Texas coming up a little bit later in the spring. But anyway, um, if you guys, uh, like I said, have a message or a comment or a suggestion you want to send us uh, on the haunt line, the number again is 217-791-791. Um, and just a couple other little things I want to mention before we get started with this, uh, this story and with the episode. Uh, I do want to mention that tickets just went on sale for the Haunted America Conference. That's coming up the weekend of June 20th through 23rd. Uh, I know we talk about the conference a lot, and uh, we love it when our listeners can join us for what's our biggest event of the year. So you can check it out, and you can make reservations at ghostconference.net. Uh, I, I did say also that I wanted to, with this episode, offer you some entertainment for the cold winter nights. And honestly, I can't think of anything that says winter and cold like the story of the Donner Party. So if you're in the Illinois, Missouri, St. Louis area, I'll be doing my annual Donner Party dinner on January 27th at, um, at the Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton. Uh, it's always a crowd pleaser, and uh, I promise that you will not be on the menu. I've 
heard all the jokes. So as you can imagine. Uh, anyway, you could check out dinnerinspirits.com and join me that night at the Mineral Springs or with any of the other events that we've coming and got coming up for the spring and the summer. And I'll be posting some new events uh, in the next uh, week or so. So you can keep an eye uh, out for that too. So, uh, and now with today's story, one that had a uh, pretty grim anniversary that was uh, back just uh, a day or so ago on January 7th, uh, I think maybe you'll enjoy this one. In 2012, I published a book called Murdered in Their Beds, which was the story of not only the axe murders in Villisca, Iowa, that claimed the lives of the J.B. Moore family and the Stillinger sisters in 1912, but it was also an examination of a series of other axe murders that occurred in Illinois, Kansas, and Colorado at the time, I believed were the work of the same killer. Well, this wasn't a theory that I took lightly. I put countless hours of research into it digging through newspaper files, visiting sites, and checking records. When I'd finished and published the book, I felt reasonably sure my theory held up. The signature of the killer matched in each of the six murder scenes. The murders all occurred near railroads by which I believe the killer traveled, and then the killings came to an end since no other scenes matched those particular six. The only thing missing from the book, and I, as you're about to hear, the only thing missing was the identity of the killer. I mean, there was no way to know who'd committed the murders. So I dubbed the killer Billy the Axeman, and that was based on a newspaper article from 1911. And I believe the murder stopped because the man was either killed in a rail accident, which was common at the time, committed to an insane asylum, arrested, or simply died from some unknown cause. I mean, the Midwest axe murders, as I think of those six murder scenes, is a compelling story from yesterday, proving the good old days weren't all that good, and our look at how rural law enforcement dealt with what was a serial killer before anyone even knew what a serial killer was. Well, in 2017, a book was published called The Man from the Train, which delved into the same murders that I did, including Velisca pursued the theory that the killer traveled by train and noted the similarities between the six murders. It's a quality book by great writers, but in addition to the six murders for which the killer's method matched exactly, they also blamed dozens of other murders on the same killer, despite them being very different methods of murder. I mean, axe murders were very common in the 19th century and early 20th century. You guys have heard me talk about this before. For the simple reason that an axe was a weapon of convenience, everyone had one. They were necessary for cutting firewood, clearing farmland, butchering chickens, and many other necessary tasks on farms and homes in small towns. And because they were so common, it seems obvious that they weren't all committed by the same person. There were a lot of axe murders out there. The six Midwest murders were very different than those that occurred in Louisiana and Texas a year or so earlier. I wrote a separate book on that string of serial murders called Victims of the Axe Fiend. The fact that there were other murders, some nearly overlapping, makes it unlikely that all the murders credited to the man from the train in the book were truly committed by the same person. 
Even so, the book blames the same killer for scores of axe murders across the United States and even in Germany. Now, another thing that makes the book different from mine is that they name the killer. They pin over 100 murders between 1898 and 1922 on a man named Paul Mueller or Muller. It's hard to say. The first murders credited to him occurred on January 7, 1898 in Brookfield, Massachusetts. So I wanted to take a closer look at that murder case and see how it compares with the six cases leaving 28 people dead. And those are the ones I feel were committed by the same man. Francis D. Newton and his family, wife Sarah and daughter Elsie, lived on a farm outside of Brookfield. He was a respected and well-liked man in the neighborhood. After he and Sarah had purchased the farm, they'd made considerable repairs to the outbuildings and barns and to the house, an old-fashioned colonial that had been built in 1768. The newly renovated property earned Francis the admiration of his friends and neighbors and brought many buyers for his cattle business to the area. By all accounts, the Newton family was happy. Francis was not wealthy, but was not in debt. He had good relationships in town and on neighboring farms. His closest friend was Arthur Rice, who often came to the Newton home so the two men could examine and curate Francis' antique coin collection. Francis was happily married to his wife Sarah and his daughter Elsie was beloved. Mother and daughter were particularly close. It was widely known that Elsie was adopted, but her parents considered her a blood relative and were fiercely protective of her. Her birth mother, Eugenia Peterson, was pregnant when she immigrated to the United States, and Elthie's birth records show she was born in the nearby town of Spencer. When Eugenia gave up her baby, she was adopted by the Newtons, and they became the only parents she really ever knew. Thanks to how busy the farm and cattle business were, Francis frequently hired farmhands to work for him. Many of these men were drifters, largely uneducated, and they lived with the family as part of the room and board that came with their small weekly salary. One of the farmhands was a man named Paul Mueller. Mueller had recently left the prestigious Point of Pines Country Club on bad terms. He'd walked off the job one day and had gone straight to the Newton farm to ask for work. Knowing that Mueller had more experience than most of the men who worked for him, Francis hired him, not knowing about Mueller's hot temper or the bad reputation he'd had with his last employer. In fact, the owners of the country club were deathly afraid of him. Mueller spoke only broken English, but claimed that he'd once served in the German army, which is where he'd learned his skill with horses. He did manage to explain he'd once been a sailor, and at the time when mostly only sailors had tattoos... Mueller had several examples of nautical ink on his arms. These tattoos would have served as identifying marks for Mueller, but he always kept them covered, wearing long sleeves, even in the summer heat. Mueller could be a trifle cranky, as he was once described, but he never drank. He was short, stocky, and had long, dark mustache, and almost always wore a checkered golf cap that he'd picked up from the country club. While most called him sullen and disagreeable and said he was feared for his temper, Francis Newton got along with him well. He was an agreeable man who'd had many farmhands work for him over the years. If they showed up and did their work, Francis always seemed to find something worthwhile about them, and Paul Mueller was no exception. 
Mueller helped finish a lot of the repairs and renovations the family had started on the house, and he also handcrafted a fine snow sled for the family one winter. But at some point, Mueller found himself criticized by his employer. He'd slacked off on his work, and Francis spoke to him about it. With a language barrier in place, it's likely that Mueller took the complaints more seriously than Francis meant them. Mueller's understanding of what it was is that if he didn't do better work, then he needed to get out. Well, it's doubtful that Francis was this harsh. He had a reputation for being a kind man, and it kept Mueller and his employee longer than anyone else in the area had. Well, the last visitor to the Newton farm on January 7, 1898, was Joseph Upham from Brimfield. He stopped by the house to collect on a $1 debt that it was owed for his business. He later reported the cheerfulness of Sarah and Elsie, but mentioned the coolness between Francis and his farmhand. He said goodbye to the Newtons, and he went on his way. A few days later, neighbors were alerted to the strange behavior of the cattle at the Newton farm. The dairy cows had not been milked in several days, and the rest of the herd hadn't been fed. Earlier in the week, Francis had gone to Wooster, about 20 miles away, with Paul Mueller to buy a horse, and neighbors assumed he was still away. But why hadn't he returned and cared for his cattle? Well, as it happened, Francis had looked at the horse but decided not to buy it. He returned home with $100 in cash in his wallet, which is about $3,000 today. This was later said to be unusual to friends, saying he never kept more than $40 on his person at a time. He was frugal, good with money, and usually was careful with any sort of cash. Neighbors knocked on the door and circled the house, not seeing any lights or activity inside. Finally, they broke open the front door and went inside to see the house had been ransacked. And the three Newtons had been killed in their beds. The farmhand, Paul Mueller, was gone. It's speculated that his disagreement with Francis caused his bad temper to erupt. The two men shared a suite with separate sleeping rooms in one part of the house, and on the night of January 7th, someone took an axe and beat Francis's head with the blunt side of it until he was unrecognizable. The killer, assumed by everyone to be Mueller, pulled the blood-stained sheets up over his employer's face and left the room. No one knows what happened next, but the police speculated that Mueller then went downstairs and killed Sarah and Elsie next. It was assumed that Elsie was killed last because of the defensive wounds on her hand, that she'd been awakened by the noise before she was murdered. The bodies of the two women showed signs of torture. There were long gashes on their abdomens and their genitals were mutilated by the sharp side of the axe. Instead of covering the bodies as he's done with Francis Newton, Mueller pulled the bedclothes and nightgowns up over the heads of the two women with their nakedness on full display. According to the autopsy that followed, neither woman had been raped. All three had their skulls violently beaten and all were drugged with laudanum, an opiate of the era, before their deaths. It was later discovered that all the horses on the farm had been poisoned. The killer had then robbed the house, taking all the cash he could find, along with the coins for Mr. Newton's collection. Other valuables, like the Newton's gold watches, were left behind. Mueller, again presumably the killer, then used kerosene to try to set the house on fire and hide the evidence of his crime. 
The fire had gone out, though, leaving everything intact. After the arrival of the police and the shocking news of the murder spread, townsfolk rushed to the scene to see the carnage. Nothing like that had ever happened in their small town before, and they wanted to be part of the history. Many of them, friends of the Newtons, assisted the police in whatever way they could. Some were interviewed, and one man claimed to have seen Mueller late on January 7th heading toward the train station. And though he called his name, Mueller ignored him. An hour or so later, train station employees also saw a man who seemed to be trying to avoid the well-lighted parts of the platform as he waited for the 1.20 a.m. train to arrive. One employee recalled selling a 75-cent ticket to the man, and he paid in part with a rare 1836 half-dollar coin. Arthur Rice later identified it as part of his friend's coin collection. A funeral was held for the family in their home a few days later, and it was said that the sermon offered by Reverend E.B. Blanchard didn't leave a dry eye in the house. The Newton family were buried in the New Braintree Cemetery. Elsie's birth mother, Eugenia, attended the funeral and wept openly for the little girl and the two people who'd cared for her. As for Paul Mueller, he was never seen again. Despite the offer of a large reward, there were no positive sightings of him, even though a multitude of false reports continued until about 1904. After that, the train will went cold, likely because no one had a good likeness of him that could be shared and he had no identifying marks. His description widely varied from one account to another, and no one even knew what his real name was, since it turned out that he'd been variously described as Paul and Saul, and his last name had been Mueller, Muller, Miller, or Muller, depending on his mood and what newspaper was printing a story about him. Most believe that after the crime, Mueller left Massachusetts and sailed for Europe. There are no clear indications about why this became an accepted theory among law enforcement officials, but it did. Mueller was never located, and after 1905, the national demand to find him faded away, and Mueller was forgotten until he was revived as the man from the train in 2017. When I began researching the Velisca murders that occurred in 1912, I also discovered the four earlier murders, plus one after Velisca. It was plain to see that each murder had a solid signature, identical in almost every way. This was the reason I believed them to be committed by one man. Those murders were Colorado Springs, Colorado, September 17, 1911, Monmouth, Illinois, October 1, 1911, Ellsworth, Kansas, October 15, 1911, Paula, Kansas, June 5, 1912, Villisca, Iowa, June 9, 1912, and Blue Island, Illinois, July 5, 1914. In each case, there were certain signs the killer left behind. The entire family was killed with the blunt side of the family's own axe, which was left at the scene, covered in blood. The faces of the victims were covered with some kind of cloth, the windows of the house were covered either by the curtains or the drapes or by clothing, blankets, or anything else the killer could find. After each murder, an oil lamp was found, its chimney removed, and the wick turned down very low. There was only one time when this didn't happen, and a flashlight was discovered at the scene. The killer remained behind in the house for an unknown length of time before leaving in every case. Occasionally he would eat, but he always cleaned up 
washing his hands or the murder weapon. Nothing was ever stolen. Robbery was not the motive. The body of at least one of the females, adult or child, was touched or posed in a sexual way. In some cases, it was obvious, for example, leaving a smear of blood behind, but in others, it was the positioning of the body. These things were found that all six murder scenes that I believe are linked to the single killer, the one I dubbed Billy the Axe Man. Now, as you likely already realize, this is not the case with the Newton murders. Some of the signatures are there, I believe by pure chance, but not all of them. Regardless, the ones that were found are likely what led the authors of the book to choose the mysterious Paul Mueller as the culprit in so many murders. Mueller did strike the skulls of the Newtons with the blunt side of an axe, as did the killers in the majority of axe murders that occurred during this period. He also covered the face of his employer. In addition, he posed the bodies of Sarah and Elsie in a sexually suggestive manner and even went so far as to mutilate their bodies. But what Mueller didn't do that matches the case of the other six murders is a longer list. He didn't cover the windows of the house. He didn't leave the telltale oil lamp behind. Plus, he drugged the family, robbed them, and tried to set the house on fire, which was something Billy the Axeman never did. There might be a case to be made that this was Mueller's first murder. So he was still escalating and hadn't yet formed the signature that would become part of the murder scene. Well, I could agree with that. But then would have to ask, wouldn't he have left his signature behind at the scene of the next murders he allegedly committed 13 years later? Well, he should have, but he didn't. If he's the man on the train and he committed all the murders the authors believe he did, then why did these signatures not appear at the crime scenes that were discovered between 1898 and 1911? After Massachusetts, Mueller was supposed to have resurfaced in the summer of 1911 in Ardenwald, Oregon and Rainier, Washington. Before that, the author speculated he might have had something to do with the murders I mentioned in Louisiana and Texas, but trust me, he didn't. While there were some similarities, those murders were very different and focused on victims who were mixed race only. There was also a religious element to the murders, which rules out anything connected to the murders in the Midwest. But let's get back to the Paul Mueller theory. He vanished completely after the January 1898 murders on the East Coast and then showed up in the Pacific Northwest in the summer of 1911. The murders in Ardenwald happened on June 9, 1911. It's an eerie date to be sure since the murders in Villisca occurred one year later. But I think that was also a coincidence. But let's get back to the murder. The victims were William and Ruth Hill and Ruth's two children from a previous marriage, Philip and Dorothy Rintoul. All four were in bed sleeping when they were killed in their beds with an axe which was left at the scene. The bodies of Ruth and Dorothy were moved after the crime. Dorothy had bloody fingerprints on her body and Ruth's body had been pulled down toward the end of the bed. The killer had washed up at the crime scene. The murders in Rainier happened one month later on July 9th. The victims were Archie Coble and his wife Nettie. They lived in a small house on the edge of town. Both were struck while sleeping by the blunt side of an axe. The killer covered Archie's face after the murder and Nettie had been pulled down toward the edge of the bed. Several suspects were investigated in this case, including a Swedish railroad worker and his foreman, a man named George Wilson. Both implicated themselves during questioning, but Wilson was arrested, tried, and convicted of the murders. Now, were these murders connected 
to Paul Mueller or at least committed by the same killer that would strike in Colorado Springs in September? Yeah, I don't think so. Even leaving out the fact that not all the elements of the crime scene, the windows, oil lamp, face covering are present, it seems odd that there are fewer of the killer's signatures in the second murders in the Pacific Northwest instead of the other way around. If he was building the signature that would mark the other scenes, then it should have been more in the second case that matched the killings in Colorado, Illinois, Kansas, and Iowa. But it wasn't. Even though two months later, the signature appears fully formed and stays the same through six murders before the murders stop. I do believe that Paul Mueller murdered the Newton family in 1898, but there's no evidence of any kind to suggest he committed any of the others. Not the crimes in the Northwest, the Midwest murders, or any of the scores of others that he's been credited for after that. There's no evidence of any kind that shows he was even still in the United States after he got away with robbery and murder in Massachusetts. So this means there's nothing that proves Mueller, or Mueller, whatever his name was, was the man from the train. His connection to all the cases but the Newton murders is pure speculation. But there's no question the man on the train existed. I believe that. I also believe that as Billy the Axeman, he killed 28 people. Between September 1911 and July 1914, there was a serial killer at work in the Midwest during those few short years and his bloody work came to an end for reasons we'll never know. We don't know why he quit. Did he die? Was he locked up? We'll never know. How and why the murder spree ended will always be a mystery, just like his identity. No matter how many clever books that I or anyone else writes about him. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with Season 8's trailer on January 24th, or 23rd. How about the 23rd instead of the 24th? But then when we come back, you'll be able to find out what we've got up our sleeve for the rest of 2024. In the meantime, keep a lookout for any other extras we get a chance to drop and coming your way. Thanks again, and We'll be in touch soon. Have a great rest of January.